I don't know if you do better in the cold than I do, but it was cold this morning. Um, but I was just, as I was sitting here during our singing, I, this isn't said really anywhere probably, but you guys sing really well. And uh, as I was, the last two weeks been away from here at home and whatnot, uh, it's just been, it was really good just to sing with you, uh, proclaiming the truths of God. And uh, my name is James, uh, my wife Emily and I are college ministry st- staff, and we're going to finish up this morning, we're going to finish up what it means to abide in the vine. Uh, and then you'll have to come back next week, because I'm not sure if we're going back to Genesis or if there's one more something. So come back. Uh, but let me just start off uh, and share something I've, that I've learned in marriage, uh, and that is when you get married, you immediately learn the depth of your spouse's passions, all right? For us, Emily and I, I think she was like blown away by the depth of my passion for sports. She had no idea how much time I consumed or used uh, specifically for the Iowa Hawkeyes and Oakland Athletics, all right? I love them. I spent a lot of time there. And for me, I had no idea the depths of her passion for running. She loves to run. She loves competing in races. She loves training for running. Um, Crazy. Uh, She loves reading running magazines. She checks out books at the library about running. And she loves being the coach of McFarland's cross-country and track and field teams. She loves running. And here's just a quick disclaimer about myself, and it might be shocking, but I strongly dislike running. (laughs) Give me a ball or frisbee, and I'm all over the field running, but give me an oval track or a treadmill, and it's like a death to me. Um... And I hate to admit this, but like prior to marriage, I kind of thought the people naively that I saw running you know, on the streets is like, well, maybe the doctor gave them an order, like they have to run. <laughs> I never imagined people ran because they enjoyed to run. I just didn't, it didn't make sense to me. So I have incredible respect for you. I have incredible respect for you, Emily. Dedicated runners. She's even running while she's pregnant, which is awesome, right? Dedicated runners who run even in the cold winters of Wisconsin. Ten years ago, I did did complete a marathon. And so in my limited experience, and by being married to a running guru, I am familiar with training programs that help runners maximize their performance for race day. And these training programs, perhaps you're familiar with them, dictate to runners like pace and distance that need to be kept in their daily schedule. And all these programs, if you Google them, have like all these different schedules for these pace and distances to achieve this maximum performance. But all the programs I find have one thing in common, and that thing is a rest day. You see, these rest days are built into the schedule, preventing your body as the runner from fatigue and injury. And as your race day approaches, you'll see these race programs, they actually taper off in the mileage that they want you to run. So why this rest day? Why this tapering off of mileage? Well, by running and running and running and running without rest, we have no substantial time. Our bodies have no time to heal and be restored. And it puts our own uh, body at jeopardy for injury or fatigue, right? Which might lead to a potential disqualification for the thing that we're training and working so hard for. So my wife, Coach D., 
express this as a common mistake for novice runners is to overtrain. Saying this, and I thought this was really profound, we often think the more we train, the better our output will be. But that is a false training principle. As important as training is to running, and it is important, learning to rest is of equal importance. Learning to rest. As Americans, we live in a culture deeply ingrained in output, a culture that continually asks ourselves, what are you achieving or what are you striving to achieve? And consequently, I think our identity is tied to our achievement. What have I done? Operating our lives in such a way that others are going to notice my achievement. To which we will then spend great energy and effort, which only makes our lives busy. Busy in relationships, busy in families, busy with kids, busy with activities, busy with spouses, busy at work, busy with projects, busy with deadlines, busy meeting and keeping appointments, busy at church, busy serving, busy exercising, busy with social media, busy at the home, completing home premise, on and on and on and on. We are busy, right? A culture that is in the business of busyness, which leads me to ask this week was just like, why? What is it? that we are trying to prove? Has my identity become so rooted in what I'm able to achieve? Like a runner who has failed to rest, leading to race or training ineffectiveness, could it be that Christians who fail to rest may also be prone to race ineffectiveness, an ineffectiveness as a disciple of Jesus? In our business of busyness, have you and I missed the rest that Jesus spoke of? And if that's true, how then do we begin to reshape our identity, not by achievement, but by resting on Jesus? Well, it's my prayer this morning that we're able to answer this question as we conclude our mini-series of Abiding in the Vine, which is really taken from John 15, 5. It'll be on the screen. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And I hope you've caught it. The last two weeks, Scott has expressed just this, that the secret to our fruitfulness as a branch is staying connected to the vine, which brings life. And he said, if you want to be a fruitful Christian, you must abide In Jesus. In week one, he reflected on this idea of abiding in God's word as our source for life. And last week, on this idea of abiding in the holiness of God rather than in our own. And this morning, we reflect on this idea that to abide in Jesus is to rest in his provision. That to abide in Jesus is to rest in his provision. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew 11, where we'll spend most of our time. Matthew 11, the first book in the New Testament, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, a passage that's probably familiar to some of us, and it's a passage where Jesus is extending an invitation, but also he's giving us an instruction, an invitation and also an instruction. 
And as we look at this invitation instruction, I then want to share with you how I see Matthew 11 beginning to work its way out into my life, and then practically considering what it would mean for us to find rest by abiding in Jesus. Let's commit this time for the Lord to work in our hearts. Jesus, we need you desperately to bring to light, to put to Put to life your words in our hearts, Jesus. May we be listening to what you have for us. In your name we pray, amen. Or if you're in Matthew 11, we'll read verses 28 through 30. It says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The first thing I want us to see from this text is that Jesus is inviting us. Look at verse 28. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And for us to understand the significance of this invitation, I think we need to begin with context. Specifically behind these words, all who labor, uh, all who labor and are heavy laden. You see, in Matthew 11, if we were to back up, we would see that Jesus is addressing a Jewish crowd, a people who was entrenched under the Pharisaical law, which the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, had, had asserted their stake as the interpreters and the keepers, the teachers of the law. And what do we know of this law? Well, we probably know that it's referred to most commonly as the Mosaic law given by God to Moses for the singular purpose of bringing the nation of Israel into relational proximity to God. And God promises life to those who keep it. And it's a law which Paul in Romans says, a law which is good and holy and righteous. But the law proved weak. And that it depended upon man to be kept. There was no means of fulfillment. Placing the nation of Israel directly into this bondage of sin and oppression. And adding to that oppression and sin and bondage were the Pharisees. Who took this Mosaic law and turned it into something so massive and so demanding. That for virtually every human activity, there was a prescribed prohibition and commandment. They created, the Pharisees, they created 365 prohibitions and 250 commandments for the Jewish person to obey. You know, I think what the Pharisees did here with the Mosaic law, we quite plainly see when we observe children probably our own selves, if we're honest. But imagine you have a fourth grader, and you have two younger kids, perhaps in preschool, and the four of you are spending the morning together, and you're having a wonderful time, you and these kids. You've entered into this wonderfully created, imaginative world where there's castles and horses and kings and princesses, imaginations like blowing up, like you're this character and you've entered into the world and now it's bedtime and now it's eating. Like it's an amazing, like imaginative world. But then you get a phone call. And as the adult, you excuse yourself from this world of imagination to talk on the phone. What happens while you're gone? 
Well, I have seen more often than not that the fourth grader is now going to step in and assume he's got authority and now is the keeper of this world that you've created. And no longer does the younger child able to really express or be a part of this imaginative world because now there's new rules. And the younger child becomes beaten down by these rules. And there's a meltdown, nearing explosion, right? I think we've seen this. And to an extent, that's what the Pharisees had done with this Mosaic law given by God. They've asserted themselves as the keepers, as the authority of the law, adding, prescribing additional commandments and prohibitions to be kept, turning the law into something that was so burdensome and heavy, like that of putting a heavy load on an animal. And Jesus says as much elsewhere in Matthew. He says, They, the Pharisees, tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. This, this is the context of Jesus' audience. A people in this toil to please and know their God, expending great effort to the point of exhaustion and the keeping of not only the Mosaic law, but also straining to keep all the prohibitions and commandments that the Pharisees prescribed. And in this audience, to these people, under this severe oppression and bondage, Jesus speaks these inviting words and says, Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Notice the first word in verse 28. It's come. It's a command, right? It's a word we use probably every day, whether it's to our kids or whether it's uh, with our friends or in our workplaces or perhaps even with our pets, Right? Um, my wife Emily loves cats. Um, her family have always been cat owners, and to them, cats are family members. And perhaps you relate to that, where pets become more or less your family member. I did not grow up that way. Um, so, unfortunately, our landlord does not allow pets, so we can't have cats. Um, it's unfortunate for Emily. But what's fortunate for her is she gets to go home and spend time with her cats, right? And it's great joy for her to be able to be with these cats because they're like her family members. And I, and I know when we go home that these cats love it when Emily comes. Like they're purring, they're like snuggled on up next to her because like she's rubbing their bellies and making life like amazing. And so, um, but when we come back to her home, it's not like immediately the cats like are jumping up on her lap, Right. But there's, there's a process. There's a coaxing. It's like, come here, come here, Lewis, Lewis, psst, come here, Lewis, come here, right? There's this, there's this coaxing, this, this, this plea of Emily to like, come, come to me. There's an impassioned plea that Emily, in this plea, in this, come, psst, Lewis, come. She's revealing a, de- a desire, a will, a compassionate heart for the cat. Come, sit on my lap, cat. If we know cats, they don't always just come, right? But cat, come to me, and I'm going to give you something of extreme blessing. You're going to be purring in no time, right? Come sit on my lap. And it's a blessing the cat can't bring upon themselves. They, they have to respond to this plea, right? 
And I know that might be silly, and maybe it's too far out there, but when Jesus says, come to me, it's the same impassioned plea making known his desire and will that you come, come to me. You who are oppressed and under the heaviness of guilt and burden of sin and shame and find relief and rest in me. Come to me. A rest which invites us to cease all our self-efforts and our feeble attempts to earn salvation. Jesus is saying, turn away from the things in which you depend upon for salvation. Turn away from the pharisaical law which you are striving to keep. Turn away from those things which beat you down into exhaustion and come to me and find rest. And the immediate context of this invitation, yes, was given to those who are Jewish people oppressed by the burden of the Pharisaical law. But I think we can open up that context to say that Jesus' invitation is for all people who are burdened under the weight and guilt of sin in their lives. I think there's no greater crushing burden to the human soul than guilt. I know I've experienced it even in my own life in a relationship where I, I had done a wrong and, and I had not, there was not a, a reconciliation yet. And I carried this burden of guilt, this guilt that had not been resolved, it had not been forgiven, and it weighs on us, doesn't it? That's like all we can think about. It saps our joy. It makes our steps really heavy because of the weight of this burden that I have this guilt that has not been dealt with. In John Bunyan's allegory, the famous work of the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, the main character, he sets out from the city of destruction and he has on his back an enormous weight that troubles him. And he uh, is troubled until he's able to lay it down. And that baggage that he was carrying was really the guilt of his sin. As Jesus looked out at this crowd who are weighed down by the guilt of their sin in compassion and immense kindness, he says to them, invites to them, come to me. Where else can we go with our guilt? Who else can take it away? Friends, if you have this weight of guilt and shame, Jesus is inviting you to come to him. It's his immense kindness that Jesus offers a rest for your soul, a forgiveness to take away your guilt and shame. Have you experienced this rest? Perhaps maybe you've strayed afar and need to return to this rest. I pray you hear Jesus' voice this morning, his immensely kind invitation, not my voice, but the voice of Jesus who says to you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And although this is an invitation to come, packed in this invitation is a profound instruction for us to obey. Look at verse 29. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Within this uh, invitation is an instruction, which is to take up my yoke upon you. He says, take my yoke upon you. And when you or I think about this word yoke, probably our minds go to like this, uh, this field uh, where we, we picture these two oxen that are, that are joined together by a heavy wooden yoke that keeps them moving in unison to, to plow or do whatever they need to do in the field. And it's certainly a metaphor that's used throughout Scripture. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Christians are told by Paul not to be unequally yoked, meaning, uh, meaning not in... in not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers in marriage, which would be like putting two completely different uh, oxen in size, incompatible oxen together, and expecting them to work as a team. Like it's going to be doomed for failure. They've got to be compatible. But I don't think Jesus is talking about that uh, kind of yoke in this uh, text. In ancient times, when a person carried a load, he might wear a yoke across his shoulders so he could carry his burden in a balanced fashion. And typically, water was carried this way with a bucket on each end of the yoke. And so Emily and I, who live next to an antique store, was able to find this. And I think it would closely resemble what is going on in this passage when Jesus says, take up my yoke and put it upon you. So I'm going to try to do this. I'm not very expert. Oh, boy. Okay, so I got the yoke. It's upon me. We'll see how long I can do this. I didn't do well in the first service. I'm changing things. But I think this is the kind of yoke that Jesus had in mind. And I find it interesting in the text that Jesus does not say, come to me and I will remove your yoke, which at this point I'm like, yes, please do. (laughs) But rather, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. You see, it's not a yoke that another person puts upon us, like the Pharisees who put the yoke of the Pharisaical law upon these Jewish people. But it's a yoke that you willingly, I willingly place this yoke, as uncomfortable as I am right now, this yoke is on me because I put it upon myself. Well, I'm going to take this off. But why is Jesus, why is Jesus saying this in this passage, to take my yoke upon you. Well, I think there's something in it that apart from Jesus' saving grace, um, picture like an unbroken, wild colt just running around, completely unmanageable, self-willed, fully determined to have his own way at all costs. And I think as an unbeliever, that's what we're like. That's like the picture of the strong self-will that we have. And accepting Jesus' invitation to come means like that I, like that of an unbroken colt, am going to surrender my will to do his will, to take the yoke upon uh, my shoulders. And I think this, this action of putting this yoke upon my shoulders really symbolizes a changing allegiance from the master of self, me, to a master of Lord Jesus. I think the image, maybe an image is of servant and master, a picture of a servant willingly placing himself under the lordship of King Jesus, who, unlike the Pharisees, our text says, is lowly and, um, and gentle. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, hold on, wait a minute. 
When I, became a, when I invited Jesus into my life, life became a lot more complicated. It became a lot harder when I took up the yoke. Life before Jesus may, perhaps maybe seemed simpler. It seemed easier. I might suggest it's because you just follow the desires of your heart. You follow the, the norms of, of culture. But maybe it seemed easier. But I would ask you this, but did you not carry that awful burden of sin? The invitation of Jesus is for us to surrender our lives to him, to dedicate ourselves to him, to sell ourselves to him. And as we do, as we take up the yoke, Jesus promises we will discover a rest for our souls. I want you to look at the text, look at the text, or look at the screen. At what point do we find rest for our souls? At what point? It's after we take up the yoke of Jesus. We can acquire and know every theological truth about the person of Jesus, but until you take up the yoke of Jesus, you'll never experience him or discover the rest for your souls. Now I have up here, I have this jar of, of, of a white substance, and we're going to do a little role play if I, was, if I was you, sitting in your seats, and you'd be like, well, hey, man, that's like a, a big jar of salt. Like, what are you doing with that? I'd be like, no, it's actually not salt. It's actually sugar. And you're like, well, from my perspective, it looks white. It's, you know, it looks grainy. It's, it's definitely salt from where I'm sitting. I'm like, well, that's because you're sitting there. I'm sitting here. And if you were to taste it, it would actually be sugary and sweet. And like, well, and we go back and forth all day long, you over there, me over here. But we would never come to a resolution, right? until you actually get out of your seat, put some of this substance into your mouth, and then you will know. Is it sugar or salt? So it is with individuals who have not proved the sweetness of Jesus. Maybe you say there's nothing in religion except that which is burdensome and sad. But the Bible itself expresses this truth, and it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. That is the test. Come and prove it for yourself. You'll never experience the full sweetness of this rest for your souls until you come to Jesus and put his yoke upon your shoulders. May this truth be heard this morning. May my my soul hear this truth. I need it. Rest for my soul, for your soul, will never be achieved when we operate out of our own will. This rest is only experienced as one puts to death their self-will and takes upon themselves the yoke of Jesus. But hear this as well. Jesus doesn't call us to do something that he himself has not endured. A familiar passage in Philippians. Philippians 2, verse 6. Who though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, under the yoke of his Father, in full obedience, 
willingly crucified his very life that we might enjoy the blessing of this rest that is now offered to us in his invitation and instruction. Jesus is not a tyrant. He's not oppressing us. It's a delight to wear his yoke. The yoke and burden of Jesus only becomes heavy when we add to it. I'm, I'm with you on this. You, you want to be rich. I want to be rich. You want to be famous. I want to be famous. You want to be known. I want to be known. I want, I want, I want. But is that the yoke of Jesus? This ambition is not your own, is your own yoke. It's not his This lust of wealth, desire for power, the craving for human love, all that is a yoke of your own making. And if you wear it, it will beat you down. You see, we're often going about it the wrong way in seeking this this rest and happiness in our lives. We set in our minds at getting this and that and this and that, and then we blame God because the burden on our backs is so heavy. But if our only care was to seek God's glory, to imitate Jesus, to be submissive in all things, closing our most intense times of petition with Jesus' own, own words, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then, then, we should find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But is that my ambition? Is that your ambition? Do I have an ambition, ambition to be more like Jesus? Are you and I willing to pick up the yoke of Jesus and place it upon my shoulders? What, what is it in our lives that prevents us from placing this yoke of Jesus upon our shoulders? Are you or am I prevented by fear? Fear of man, fear of death, fear of being known? Are we prevented by bitterness, maybe in a relationship, a past experience? Are we prevented by idolatries, the love of money, sex, work, fame? Are we prevented by apathy or doubt or anxiety? Perhaps there's another reason that prevents you from taking up the yoke of Jesus, or perhaps you don't even know the reason. I pray that the Spirit of God brings to light that which is veiled for you. For me, what prevents me from fully taking up, one of the things, there's many things, one of the things that prevents me from fully taking up the yoke of Jesus is my own fear of man. And as I've reflected on this passage this week, I I see this in my life, and I see it being, um, I I see how how it needs to be worked out. One of my greatest struggles is to win the approval and acceptance of other people. It's an idea that is often termed as fear of man, thinking I need the love and acceptance and approval from other people, resulting in a tendency to operate out of a fear uh, of not having this need fulfilled. And this fear, uh, quite honestly, can control me. For often what, uh, it's often said, for often what you think you need controls you. And there's nothing wrong 
There's nothing wrong with wanting to be loved or wanting a good reputation. We should want them both. In fact, it's very inhuman not to. But the problem comes when we want these things too much. We want them for our own glory rather than God's. You see, when folks come into my home, my natural inclination is to win over love, acceptance, and approval. For example, on, on City Group night, last, just on Tuesday, folks came in to our home. I'm at the door. I greet. I take coats. I make light and fun conversation. Maybe they don't say, think so. But then I listen. I ask questions. I grab coat, uh, dessert, coffee. I'm floating all around the room because I want everybody to love, accept, and appreciate me. All great things, though things that a host should do, but deep down in my heart, I have to ask myself this extremely difficult question. What, James, is your ambition? Whose kingdom am I building? Mine or God's? Am I so far into this self-love operating from these self-created, imposed rules and regulations that I have to do this, 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 and this so that I will receive approval, love, and acceptance? Or am I operating out of a knowledge of what Jesus has already done for me? That I am loved and accepted and approved. And therefore, I act as a dispenser of that love to others. That's my fight. It's a real battle over my ambition and my allegiance in my heart. And it led me to think about this. What if, what if I did win over the approval and love of those folks that one night in my home? What if I accomplished that? When will I know, though, that I've arrived? At what point will I be satisfied by what I've achieved When will enough be enough? Do you notice the incredible weight I'm placing upon myself? This this burden of having to flutter all around, placing the fate of individuals' happiness squarely upon my shoulders. This fear of man becoming unnecessary, a burden and a weight added, beating me down just as the Pharisees beat down these Jewish folks with added rules and commandments that they had to keep. When I trust in myself, operating out of self-love and ambition, I will never experience the rest for my soul. Because you know what? Tuesday night is coming up. Another city group is just around the corner. More folks are coming to my home that I'm going to have to work and toil to earn approval, love, and acceptance. Do you see this oppression and bondage I place myself in? These things I've added to my life, I've added to the yoke of Jesus. But it's in this place of oppression and bondage, this heaviness, this weight, that Jesus ushers this amazing invitation, come to me. Come to me. James, put aside your ambition for approval and acceptance. Lay down your fear of rejection, James, and come to me for what you toil for, for what you are busy for in your life, what beats you down and tires you out. I have already achieved for you. James, 
you are accepted. You are loved. You are approved. And as I come to Jesus, as I take up his yoke, I want to find, I, I know the promise to be true, that there's a rest for my soul. No longer do I have to toil for what I think I have to achieve, for Jesus has done it already. And it's a rest I believe we're never able to comprehend until we're there. I hope you can see yourself in this testimony. Perhaps it's not because of fear of man, but perhaps there's some added unnecessary burden that you are piling onto your life. What is it that you tend to believe that you must achieve? Perhaps it is love and acceptance. Perhaps it's money or being known or happiness, peace, security. Could go, the list can keep going. You fill it in. Why is it so hard for us to rest in the already provided provision of Jesus? Well, I have found that most Americans do not know how to rest. Even if you give somebody an off day at work, they're probably being busy doing something, right? We've been programmed to achieve by our culture. We're prone to work for, get busy, tirelessly toil in feeble attempts to achieve and produce something for ourselves that we think possesses value. But I hope that we are seeing and will continue to see from Matthew and other places in Scripture that Jesus has already achieved, that who we are becoming is far more significant than what we are achieving. To abide in Jesus is to rest in his provision. And I think this is a truth that needs to be mirrored in our daily lives. Meaning we need to consider what practical ways can I establish rhythms of rest in our daily life that mirrors that I understand this idea that I'm not going to achieve, but I'm going to trust in faith what Jesus has done for me. And I'm just going to quickly share three such considerations, but I encourage you to log back into the city this week for additional ideas. And Scott, the last two weeks, and, um, has posted just ideas that we can try as a family as we I, uh, attempt to abide in the vine. And as we go to city groups this week, this is just a great discussion, not just in rest, but in all these areas of what does it mean to abide in Jesus? Let's talk about it. Let's be a help and a resource to one another. I'm just going to share three quick things, really, from my own life um, that we try to make a priority, um, and you can try as well, and, and I know you guys probably have things uh, you could s- express to me as well that I would love to hear. The first one is just rhythm of time. I mean, we only have so much time, right? And so we better have a good rhythm of what we're doing with our time. So constantly just evaluating output versus, output versus input, dismissing lies that just by being busy, we're doing more, especially kingdom work. Um, and being accountable to schedules and prioritizing a day of rest in our calendar. So just real practically, Sunday nights, Emily and I typically, um, more, most often, we'll, we'll sit down on a Sunday night and we'll share each other our weekly schedule. But what that does is that just opens us up. We've laid our schedule out, and now another can speak into my life of like, maybe there's a blind spot, maybe there's a potential. What are you trying to achieve by spending so much time here or not enough time here? But you're opening yourself up to potential blind spots of self or overachievement. 
And, and another thing is just discovering a day of rest. And if it's not a whole day, some of our schedules may not allow for it, but a good portion of a day just simply to rest. Emily and I have been fortunate to be able to take Fridays as our day of rest, meaning we, we have three criteria for our day of rest on Friday. One, we have to do things that put us to life. Secondly, we have to do things that place us into a better commune with Jesus. And thirdly, we do things which must be approved by the both of us. We can't just individually say, I'm going to do this, but we have to have approval of each other to do that. Those are some things to help us manage the time that has been given to us so that we have good boundaries with how we're uh, using our time. Secondly, just a rhythm of enjoyment, meaning just slowing down and appreciating this wonderfully created world that God has created. There's a lot for us to enjoy if our souls are just awakened to slow down. Making time for friendships, making time to go on date nights, making time for hikes or or walks in nature around your neighborhood, making time to absorb well-written literature or movies or to just express yourself through good art, making the time to pursue recreational activities that bring you to life. But how can you slow down and just enjoy rhythms of enjoying what God has created? Rhythm of time, rhythm of enjoyment, and third, a rhythm of thankfulness, and probably a, a very important rhythm for us to grow in. Um, and that is just a heart of thankfulness is very hard um, because grumbling becomes very natural. But can we begin to work on cultivating a heart of gratitude? And this implies, though, if we're going to have a heart of gratitude, this implies that we are at a pace where we can slow down to observe and watch and listen and see what it is that we can be thankful for, where God is at work. So I encourage you, just develop and implement a strategy of thankfulness, both individually and with your family. Perhaps keeping a journal of Thanksgiving, you know, beginning each day with, hey, five things I'm thankful for. What is it? Uh, maybe it's including around conversation around dinner time of things that you're thankful for. Emily and I frequently, we just pray. Our prayer is just, what are you thankful for? It's tip- a lot of times how we pray for a meal. Creatively displaying, I've seen this in many homes over the years, just of ways people dis- display thankfulness in their home. Um, go to Pinterest. I'm sure there's great ideas. Make thankfulness um, just a normal way of how you converse with others. And I found really convicted on this. Of how am I communicating to others? Is this a part of my speech? Am I ex- uh, uh, expressing thanksgiving in, in the way I talk? But rhythm of time, rhythm of enjoyment, rhythm of thankfulness. And there's a lot more we could go in there. Um, but thinking through how is it that we can mirror this, this reality that God has already provided, God has already achieved, that we have this rest and we can slow down and enjoy uh, what he has created. Close with this. Uh, Scott has said this uh, throughout. He said, The secret to our fruitfulness as branches is staying connected to that which brings life. If you want to be a fruitful Christian, you must abide in Jesus. And so I just had this question, and I, I didn't know what the answer was. I had an idea, but I didn't really know what the answer was. And I just said, what happens to those who fail to abide in Jesus? And um, I was kind of surprised. At the next verse in John 15, we usually go to John fifteen five, abide in the vine. But verse 6, the next verse says this, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burned. That's a harsh, forewarning reality, right? Doesn't get much straightforward than that. And reflection upon these verses, I just, I had to do an experiment uh, because I want to be convinced. So with Emily's permission, I took one of our house plants and I, I just cut off some of the branches. Not a big house plant, we don't have those. Um, but one week later, like, here's the result of these branches that I have cut off. 
You know, one week ago, this, this branch was, was beautifully green. It was vibrant and full of life. It possessed an unbelievable ability to bear much fruit. Then I cut it off. One week later, it has become a yellowed branch. It's lifeless. It's actually like crumbling. The leaves are crumbling in my hand. You know, I think it leaves very little for us to conclude. I hope it's a sobering picture that we can take home because it's utterly absurd to believe that a branch may find life apart from the vine. As a branch rests and depends upon the vine for life, we as God's created people rest and depend upon Jesus for life. Who we are becoming is far more significant than what you are achieving. Do you believe that this morning? I'm growing in that. And I want to be part of a family vine where we can display to Madison that we are a people, that we are a family that's striving to achieve nothing for ourselves but fully resting upon the provisions of what Jesus has already achieved. To abide in Jesus is to rest in his provision. Jesus, we do thank you for this provision that you have done, that you have achieved, that which we cannot. May we grow in the truth that we can rest in your provision. May you teach us this truth. May you grow us in this truth. May you use others in this family to keep us accountable to this truth. Jesus, we do pray as you prayed that we would do the will of you, that we would take upon your yoke and learn from you.